Major League Baseball is nearing a major deal with its main provider of regional sports networks. Plus, we'll check in on some of the biggest stories in the world of football. And later, we will hear about what it takes to start a brand new team with huge aspirations from the CEO of incoming NWSL team, Bay FC. It's Monday, December 18th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. We may have some clarity and even stability regarding regional sports networks for the first time in over a year, at least. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Uh, great to have you. First, if you could just fact check my intro there. Do we, in fact, have some clarity and stability regarding regional, sport ne- regional sports networks and, and Major League Baseball? We're closer to clarity on a short-term basis, so you're pretty close on both fronts, but a deal's not quite across the finish line, and we're basically only talking about the 2024 season. But given where we've been, this is a big step forward where for many months, essentially since um, almost a year, really, since Diamond Sports Group, the parent of Bally Sports, uh, filed for bankruptcy uh, early last spring, uh, baseball has been at loggerheads with this company, uh, trying to figure out what are your broadcast plans? How are you going to make this work? Tell us what we're doing, because teams have to plan out multiple years into the future, and there are are existing contracts. And as we... uh, have this discussion right now there are still 11 teams that are under contract with diamond you know what is the plan going forward and so baseball the league has been banging on this company trying to get and going to the court repeatedly trying to get some answers on this and as that sort of constant plea for clarity has been happening there's been some um backroom negotiations and we've just had another court hearing in this ongoing bankruptcy case with diamond and there is now what they're calling quote a framework of a deal that will provide some answers to these questions as to at least what the 2024 season is going to look like we don't know the terms of that deal we don't know if all 11 teams that are under contract to dsg are involved but it does there's a very different change in tone uh, and a new tone that sort of suggests that there's going to be at least some critical mass of clubs here involved that know they're going to have their games shown on these RSNs and that that money is going to be coming in for those rights next year. Okay. So yeah, we deal's not done. We don't really know the terms yet, but it sounds like teams will know who's going to be their broadcaster through the whole year, which of course was not the case last year when a couple of teams had to scramble. Yeah. And we won't have a situation like San Diego or Arizona where they're going to be sort of dropped with no notice in the middle of the season. And the league's got to come and stand up, you know, in a fire drill scenario, uh, getting those games produced and distributed. Um, And that's one of the big things beyond the revenue thing that we're talking about is it, Everybody involved wants just to avoid that kind of fire drill or like, oh, there's a game tomorrow night and we don't know how that game's going to be produced or distributed. Yeah, right. And so, as you said, this is just for 2024, 2025 and beyond. Still a completely open question, sounds like. Completely open question. Also, what is a completely open question is whether there's even going to be a Diamond Sports Group. They're, you know, the parent company, Sinclair, you know, they've already said in court that they they think the like, most likely scenario is probably going to be a, a liquidation of this company. You know, they've got their, their own sort of axe to grind with the subsidiary. Um, but... We just still don't even know what the reorganization plan is going to be. So to say anything about 2025, we certainly don't know what the rights are going to be because then we don't even know what the company is going to look like in 2025. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's I uh, yeah, gotta gotta have to have a company before you can even make a deal. Um, and um, let's zone in on one particular regional sports network, Masson, the Mid Atlantic Sports Network, broadcasts the Nationals and the Orioles. Those two teams and the network have been locked in court battles for. Uh, you know, longer than a lot of people have been alive. <laughs> yeah. And um, so uh, what, what's the story there? There have been some recent developments. Yeah. So earlier this year, there was a settlement for the sort of first contract period that had been in dispute all these many years, 2011 to 2016. They've been literally fighting for more than a decade over the rights for that particular contract term because that was going to set the pathway going forward for the future contract terms. There was a settlement earlier this year uh, really favoring the Nationals um, in that whole scenario because there were court rulings uh, um, and arbitration uh, rulings in favoring the Nationals. So based on all of those prior scenarios, uh, what has now happened is the Orioles and the Nationals have now come forward to the court and they're looking to say, okay, now please bless the next contract term 2017 to 2011. And each of these teams will be getting, uh, on average, a little less than $61 million, a little over $300 million for the uh, five-year term, but on an annual basis, a little less than uh, sixty-one. Um, but it's, again, a very different situation where after all of these years of fighting um, in court and in MLB arbitration, uh, because the die is now sort of cast, they can just say, okay, we now know what the landscape is. Here's the next term. And so it's just very simple, very clean, and very different from, again, 10-plus years of fighting. Right. Yeah, and all that fighting has made it very hard to put a price on the Nationals and maybe the Orioles, because you know, unclear how for sale they are. Pretty clear that the Nationals are for sale. Um, do you think this could, this domino falling over, or I guess that's not a completely done deal either, but it, as these things get hammered out and everyone knows how much money they're getting, um, could we potentially be seeing a Nationals sale Sooner rather it helps than later on both fronts. Um, certainly the Nationals and, and some open questions around the Orioles as well. But this is definitely helpful because this is a, a critical revenue stream, usually one of the largest or you know one of the top three re individual revenue streams that a, a team has. And to have some clarity on that, at least some figment of clarity on that, it definitely helpful. And not having that clarity certainly has complicated uh, the learners' efforts to sell part or all of the nationals. And so to have uh, at least another data point pointing in that direction in terms of what, what the economic situation of this team is, definitely helpful. And with the Orioles, they've got their own questions. The team There's been rumors that, uh, that that team is for sale as well. That's been sort of privately denied, but not publicly. They're still trying to get the lease deal done. So again, having this other big chunk of business, uh, another piece of it settled, pretty helpful to getting some open questions resolved there too. All right. Eric Fisher, clarifying as always, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Always a pleasure. The Carolina Panthers defeated the Atlanta Falcons 9-7 on Sunday, doubling their win total this season to two. Fans are losing interest in watching a team that has had no credible playoff hopes for over a month, and prices are starting to reflect that. If you peruse ticket prices for NFL games on the secondary market, you'll see some as low as $50, some in the 60s or 70s. The more in-demand games are over 100 for the cheapest tickets. By contrast, the Panthers game on Sunday had ticket prices as low as $5, and in at least one case, $0.45. Cents. For the price of a latte, you could bring your entire family to see the Panthers. 
Looking ahead to next week, prices are naturally higher further out from the event. The Panthers-Packers game currently has tickets as low as $47 on TickPick. The Dolphins-Cowboys game on the same day currently has tickets as low as $325. In a dismal season like this, you can usually look forward to a top draft pick to try to turn things around, but the Panthers traded away their 2024 first-round pick to get the top pick in 2023. They say when you hit rock bottom, the only way you can go is up. Under the ownership of David Tepper, however, the Panthers are showing that things can always get worse. All that said, if the Panthers head coach carousel continues, there may be an interesting name on the market this offseason. Bill Belichick remains the head coach of the New England Patriots, a position he's held since the year 2000, but the rumors are that this year will be his last with the team. Belichick took over a team that had never won a Super Bowl and led them to six championships and two Super Bowl losses, both of which I thoroughly enjoyed. That run has built the Patriots into a behemoth, which Forbes estimated this year to be the second most valuable NFL team at $7 billion. Given that the Washington Commanders went for a hair over $6 billion earlier this year, $7 billion seems like the floor for what the Patriots could cost if Robert Kraft ever put them on the market. All of that earned Belichick some runway when it came to building the next Patriot teams post-Tom Brady, but since Brady left, the Patriots have gone 7-9 and in 2020, 10 and 7 the next year, losing in the wildcard game, 8 and 9 last year, and after their loss to the Chiefs on Sunday, they are one game better than the Panthers at 3 and 11. Belichick might be the best strategist the league has ever seen, but history only counts for so much when the present is this rough. And lastly, add one more to the list of prominent voices calling for wholesale reform of the collegiate athletic system. UCLA football coach Chip Kelly laid out a big new vision for college sports at a press conference. I think football should be separate from the other sports. Just the fact that our school is leaving to go to the Big Ten in football, our, our softball team should be playing Arizona in softball. Our basketball team should be playing Arizona in basketball. And they say, well, how do you do that? Well, Notre Dame's independent in football, and they're in a conference and everything else. I think we should all be independent in football. And you can have a 64-team conference that's in the Power Five, and you can have a 64-team conference in the Group of Five, and we separate it, and we play each other. You can have the West Coast teams. And then every year we play seven games against the West Coast teams, and then we play the East. So we play Syracuse, Boston College, Pitt, West Virginia, Virginia. Then the next year you play against the South while you still play your seven teams. You can play a seven-game schedule. You can play four against another conference, another division opponent, and you can always play against one Mountain West team every year so that we can still keep those rivalries going. Not that I've really thought about this. <laughs> Not that I've a lot of spent time on this. And speaking of money, Kelly also said, let's get rid of NIL and just pay the players. Revenue sharing with players feels more or less inevitable at this point, but what form it takes is going to matter a lot. As for the super conference idea, the problem is that the SEC, ACC, Big Ten, and Big 12 all have multi-billion dollar media rights deals that run into the 2030s, which is why conference realignment happened in the first place. So unless you want to renegotiate all of that, the super conference will probably have to wait. Usually, when an expansion team enters a league, there's a lot of excitement, but also relatively low expectations, because it takes time to build up a new club. That's not the case for Bay FC, which will enter the NWSL next season. The team already has what's being reported as the largest sponsorship deal in the entire league, and is co-owned by four legends of the national women's soccer team. I spoke to Bay FC CEO Brady Stewart on the process of launching a team from scratch, carrying all the expectations for growth that the NWSL has right now. And that conversation is coming up next. I'm joined now by Brady Stewart, CEO of Bay FC. Welcome, Brady. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. So let's get to know you a little bit. How did how did you become the CEO of this brand new NWSL team? You know, I, I will say 
getting this job is a true dream for me. I I heard about the team and I felt this passion to be a part of it. I, I knew that in your career, most people don't get the opportunity to number one, build something from scratch, but number two, build something that has the potential to have such an incredible impact on the communities that we're part of and women's sports globally. So it was kind of a goosebumps moment when I when I got the job and got to be a part of the team. Yeah. And I'm sort of jumping ahead here, but what what's kind of your vision for that sort of community impact that a, a new team can have? Well, I think there's a couple lenses. You can look at community as a team. So there's community from the perspective of, hey, the Bay Area is one of the greatest sports markets in the world. And we have a chance to join that community of sports teams and, and be a part of that group. There's the opportunity to connect with the community of fans, which is so important for us. We want to be uh, building a fan base and connecting with our fans across the full Bay Area and then hopefully globally over time. But so there's there's the community impact of of connecting with your fans. And then there's the third, which is we are a, a club that was founded by a group of former players that is, you know, founded on the mission of a great player experience and then extending that into the communities that we are a part of and thinking about how can we give access to the game and how can we create and support leadership uh, driven through the sport of soccer. So lots of lunges that you can look at community as a sports team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And start staying in that realm for a moment. Right now, there are just 12 NWSL teams. That leaves a lot of big markets that, you know, that the league can move into. Um, why do you think the league chose the Bay Area? I mean, I think the Bay Area is probably going to be one of the greatest women's sports markets in the world, and women's soccer in particular. So number one, we are, as we talked about, an amazing sports market, right? We have some of the best fans in the world. We're a big, diverse geography. It's actually the sixth largest DMA in the country. But we also have some of the most iconic sports teams in the world with some of the most amazing fans in the world. So you have the sports umbrella of the Bay Area. And then we also have the women's soccer in the Bay Area is a huge deal organically, right? I think about 40% of the U.S. women's national team had ties to the Bay Area. We have huge youth sports going on and, and women's sports, women's soccer going on in the Bay Area. You've got Santa Clara, you've got Stanford, both women's soccer sports dynasties. Um, we had our four founders are all from the Bay Area, women's sports, uh, women's soccer icons. So I think the market is just a great sports market and a great, great women's soccer market. So it all came together for us. Mm -hmm. And um, so the NWSL, of course, just announced uh, a media deal uh, that's, you know, a much, much larger than the previous deal, about 40 times larger, uh, $60 million uh, a year for four years with CBS, ESPN, Amazon and Scripps. Uh, how do you think that's going to, you know, turbocharge the league going forward as Bay FC comes in? I think turbocharge is, is a great word. We, when you think about the flywheel of women's sports and what you need to to get it going, there's sort of three components that work together. The first is, I would say, access. The second is fan engagement. And then the third is, you know, the product on the field or the game and the in-stadium experience. And that 
access is the top of the is the top of the flywheel and that's the media deal and it, it basically we want to get the game into people's homes right now under the previous media deal it's hard to find the games to watch them at home when you want to watch them or on the you know method you want to watch them whether it's traditional or streaming this deal gets us into way more homes way more games on on your screens and it's both streaming and traditional media so it's it's the beginning of that flywheel and how do you as you know as the ceo of the team how do you can speed up that flywheel or are, are there certain parts of that that wheel that you're more focused on or where you can have a bigger impact I mean, for us we are obsessed with two things and that is having an incredible player experience we're a player centric club we are all about our players both nurturing them on the field but then off the field and post their time with us so player centricity but fan experience. So we're about the players and the fans. And for us with fans, it is a sold out stadium. Every game we want to create true home field advantage for our team. And we want our fans to say, Oh my gosh, going to a Bay FC game is amazing. Bring your friends. Our family always goes right. So it's incredible, immersive fan experience is the other thing we're trying to create. And we want to sell out all the seats in the stadium while we do it. So, this question is slightly unfair because the team hasn't even started playing yet, but you come from a non-sports background. You've worked with, you know, executive at Forma and Levi Strauss. Um, what What's different and what's the same about going from that world to running a sports team? I mean, I think there's, there's always uh, an industry-specific learning curve, but there's a lot more commonalities than there are differences. So at the end of the day, it's about creating a connection with your fans. And that's, that's true in sports and that's true in apparel and that's true in beauty. It's how are you connecting with them? How are you, um, part of their emotional journey, whether it's the clothes they wear, making them feel great, or, you know, the beauty products that they apply, making them feel more confident or in the sports world, it's having them see the connection to the players on the field or part of or feel that they're part of something bigger than the, who they are is that fan journey. So it's creating those connections. It's creating really immersive experiences. And then it's figuring out the right way to speak to your fans in between the times that they're in the stadium. So it's all about connection and communication, no matter what you're doing. And how does that specifically work in the world of women's soccer? I mean, when I when you think of, you know, imagine a sports fan, it's probably, you know, a guy in their, you know, you know, I guess it could be kind of any age, but but there's sort of a, a specific, um, you know, zeitgeist status quo of that's more male. And um, whereas women's sports are having a moment, soccer's having a moment. And obviously the one of the big opportunities there is bringing in more female fans. I would assume you would want to bring in those female fans, but also leave room for, you know, your, your typical sports fan. Um, does that kind of, how does that shape how you reach out to fans and engage them to try to bring in everybody? I, I love that question. And I have like so many responses to it. I think at first, of course, we want everyone to come to the stadium. It's an amazing sporting experience. Women's soccer in the U.S. is, you know, the highest level of the game in the world. And we plan on putting a great show on in the stadium, both on the pitch and in the environment. So, yeah, we want every sports fan, full stop. I think for women in particular, we also want to create that multi-generational sports fan archetype that you were just talking about. You know, one of the things I, I think about often in this role is the stories that you hear from often men, you're right, who are maybe, you know, 
kind of older and they talk about, you know, my grandfather used to go to Yankee stadium and he would get in for a dime and go sit on the bleachers and a dime would get him a bleacher seat and a bag of um, bag of peanuts. Right. And then the players afterwards would sign the balls and that created that lifelong fandom for that young boy. And then he took his son who took his son. And then you have this multi-generational fan base for the Yankees say, I think we have this moment that we can do that in women's soccer, right? So you have the the young girl who's going to be brought with her family. And by the way, the, the young boy too. So this is about young people, right? So you have the young family who goes. They have an incredible time at the game. They bring their kids. They bring their kids. And so I think we're at the beginning of this multi-generational journey, which is so cool, right? It's It's the most authentic, deep, heartfelt connection you can build between a fan and a team. And we get to do that. Um, the U.S. women's national team, you know, is not the NWSL, but is, you know, is more has more celebrity, has more cachet than the men's team. Uh, obviously, the last World Cup didn't go as well as as hoped, but they are still, I think, thought of as the dominant women's soccer team globally. I'm wondering if that, you know, ha- how that interacts with what you do, if there's any direct interaction or if it's just, you know, a nice little boost that, you know, uh, people can probably at least name a few women's soccer players because of the celebrity of the the women's national team. Yeah, I mean, I think the women's national team is incredible, and they are, you know, icons. I think they're the, probably the most successful national team in any sport, just about. So they're pretty dominant globally. And actually, we have four former U.S. women's national team players as our founders. So we have a, a, a great connection into that community. And I think there, there's two facets. Number one, you have U.S. women's national team players playing in the NWSL. So you're drawing fans into the stadium to see them, like Trinity Rodman is playing with the Washington Spirit. I'm sure Bay FC will hope to have some U.S. women's national team players on the pitch. So they're drawing fans in. They're creating that sort of immediate like, oh, my gosh, look, you can see this person who you saw on TV now in your backyard. Right. So that's that's pretty great. So they, they lend cachet to the league that way. And also we we want the league and we want the team to be competitive, not just in the U.S., but we want the NWS, NWSL to be the best women's sports league. And so we need more U.S. women's national team players and, you know, second team players in, in the, in the teams with us in the league with us driving that performance for the whole league. Hopping over to a different topic, uh, Bay FC signed what is reportedly the largest sponsorship deal in NWSL history. Again, before you've played a game, uh, the reporting is it's with Sutter health for uh, $13 million over five years. Um, how, what does that say about the you know belief in this league and you know to to be bringing in a, a deal of that size? What does that say about this moment? Well, I think we are incredibly grateful to Sutter for coming on this journey with us. They are, as you know, not just our commercial par- partner but also our official medical partner of the team. For us, it was really important for us to get a medical partner or. A, a commercial partner and a medical partner brought together because as we talked about, we are player centric. And so one of our core values is providing incredible medical care for our players. And we knew that Sutter was going to be the right partner on that. Sutter also shares our commitment to community. So a lot of what we're going to be doing together is to support mental health, physical fitness, access to sport in the Bay area. And so they're very strategic partner with us. And I would say you know, they do see the vision and they are along for the journey, but it's also a very values-based partnership, which we're really lucky and grateful to have. Mm-hmm. And just thinking more broadly about the league, you know, we keep hearing that 
women's soccer is just on this this huge growth trajectory. But obviously, that doesn't just happen on its own. You know, it has to be people like yourself and the teams and the league all, all working together. What are the next steps for this league to take that next step, get to the next level? Media deal. We need we need those. We need people watching those games and excited about the games. And so that that new media deal is a huge unlock. We need teams to continue to sell out tickets. Like the growth rate on ticket sales year over year in the NWSL was tremendous, but we need more. So we need fans to show up and we need teams to build great experiences. That's that's one and two. Um, and then I think we need sponsors to show up the way Sutter did. You know, and I have to believe if you have the viewers and you have the the attendance in stadium that the business side will come as well. Because I, th- I think that's sort of been the knock on women's sports is like, oh, it's, um, you, you can't, you don't command the business case, but I think we have to prove out that we absolutely do and can. All right. Yeah. Very interesting. Brady Stewart, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It was really awesome. That's it for today. Subscribe to Front Office Sports Today or tell a friend about the show. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.